0: KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.
1: Welcome back to the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. I have a confession to make. I'm a reanimator of the musical groupie. My obsession with Reanimator the Musical began in March of 2011. I had always loved Stuart Gordon's 1985 low budget cult horror film Reanimator. So when I heard there was to be a musical stage version with a splash zone, well, I was hooked. Both the film and the play are based on an H.P. Lovecraft story about Herbert West, a young med student who discovers a reanimating agent that can bring the dead back to life.
2: Don't expect it to tango, it has a broken back.
1: But
3: it was dead! Twice! Uh, Why does it sound like that? Birth is always painful!
1: But the dead are pissed about coming back.
3: I give the gift of free
1: animation! In the years since it's opened, I've seen it more than two dozen times, including following it to Scotland for the Festival Fringe, and most recently to Las Vegas, where I saw it four times in three days. I just can't get enough. I constantly have songs stuck in my head, including one about an outstanding basement. I even learned the Miskatonic fight song by heart.
3: Fight on Miskatonic! Push them back, push them back, and then up.
1: And then brought pom-poms for audience members and then taught them how to sing along. So you're probably thinking, what could possibly prompt such devotion and obsession? First of all, the show serves up a rare kind of perfection and ingenuity. When Stuart Gordon decided to bring his own film to the stage, he recognized that doing a stage play now is like doing a low-budget horror film in the 80s, because there was no CGI and no budget for optical effects back then, so everything was done like you would in live theater. And that contributes to another reason to love the show. It makes us willing participants in the illusions it creates. It has a charming as well as wickedly clever do-it-yourself quality that thoroughly engages the audience. It's like knowing the magician's trick and still being dazzled. And maybe that's the do-it-yourself quality that inspires creativity on the part of its fans. People in line have come in elaborate costumes and with homemade props, sometimes of amazing quality. I've met people at Reanimator the Musical that I've become fast friends with because of our shared passion. Then, of course, there's the blood. That's a big reason to love the show. Graham Skipper, who plays Herbert West, makes it his personal goal to shoot the blood out as far as he possibly can, or to pick on one victim, like a little boy in Las Vegas, who screamed with delight as he was showered in a spray of blood. At the opening week of the show, I spoke with a pair of giddy fans, Gabriela Rodriguez and Emilio Castro, about sitting in the splash zone. I was sitting
2: fourth seat in and I like right in front of like the intestine spray at the end so like I pretty much got splattered. I'm completely, I'm soaked right now. Um, Being in the front row is freaking amazing. I mean like I don't know. It's a once in a lifetime experience, so it's like,
4: woo! Splatter
5: Zone was really awesome. It was great. And I hope other people come by and come see the show. The actors have really done a good job.
1: Reanimator, the musical, also has an amazing tone. It's funny, but never at the expense of the characters. It has outlandish gags, but we always care about the people and are actually moved when events turn tragic. Unlike the Evil Dead musical, Reanimator the musical never ridicules the characters or the source material, but rather is respectful and playful. The Evil Dead musical, although charmingly performed here in San Diego, takes the tone of the movie Scream and is constantly doing that nudge, nudge, wink, wink, look how much smarter we are than the material we're making fun of. Reanimator the musical has none of that smugness, and the actors are playing the characters straight as they're written rather than mocking them, and that's a much more winning approach. I have to admit, I'm not a very musical person. In fact, I'm rather tone deaf. And when I don't appreciate something like Into the Woods, I'm told that I simply don't understand its musical complexity. Fair enough. But I don't need to understand the musical complexity of Reanimator the Musical to know that I love it and that I can listen to it endlessly.
3: Plagiat! Gruber shouted Plagiat! He screamed Plagiat! In the German tongue! Or plagiat, plagiarism, you see, and rather nice when it's sung. Germans say a plagiat, Cooper said a plagiat, just like déjà vu, he'd been there before.
1: But I wanted to know why the music so enthralled me. So I asked Jesse Merlin, who plays Dr. Hill, and who also happens to be a classically trained opera singer, if he could help me articulate why I find it so delightful and rewarding to listen to the music repeatedly. So this is what Merlin sent me back in a midnight Facebook message. He said... I think it's fair to say that Mark Nutter's music is chromatically inventive in the sense that the chords move in unexpected and clever ways that seamlessly match the pithy, multi-layered wordplay and rhyme scheme. Mark uses intervals uncommon in modern musicals, such as the tritone or devil's interval. Think European siren. There is a patter and rapid text requiring dexterity and diction more akin to an operetta than a modern musical. And although his music sounds just fine with modern voices and contemporary singing styles, it's also well-suited to classical voice like mine because he writes long legato vocal lines that have substantial direction and shape. Okay, what he said. That explains why I love the music so much. So let me begin my reanimator the musical tribute with an interview I did for NPR with director Stuart Gordon the opening week of the play. When you decided to bring this to the stage, uh, what kind of challenges did you see right off the bat?
6: Well, the biggest problem is that you got a character who gets decapitated at the beginning of Act 2 and spends the next half hour carrying his head around in his hands, and that seemed like a kind of a sizable problem.
1: Now, talk a little bit about kind of the approach you and the effects team took to bringing the effects, you know, from the film to the stage.
6: Well, when we did the film, you know, uh, back in 85, a lot of the effects were happening. They were live stage effects. You know, we were not. We didn't have a budget to do optical effects. There was no CG then, so we did things kind of very sort of simple and the way you do them in a, in a live theater. And that's what finally I finally realized is if we just could use those same effects right here for a, for a live audience, it would seem it would seem like it would should work pretty well.
1: And how has the audience responded?
6: They have been going crazy, which is great.
1: Yeah. Now, tell me whose idea was the splash zone and tell me what that is.
6: Well, you know, uh, Reanimator uh, w- is known for the bloodletting. You know, we used about 30 gallons of blood in, uh, in the making of that film. So, everyone, when I would tell them I was going to do Reanimator, they'd go, well, there's going to be a lot of blood. Is there going to be blood? So I said, okay, blood is part of the story. And I uh, uh, decided that we should have a special zone for the audience who really likes blood to be able to bathe in it, to be showered with it. And uh, every preview, I'd come out and ask the audience, you know, how they liked the show, and they'd always say, "More blood, and more blood." And I was—I started realizing that the only thing that would make them happy is if we could do something like they did in the promo for *The Shining*, with the elevator doors opening up and 3,000 gallons of blood come pouring out. I think they wanted to swim out of the theater.
1: Recently, you know, *Spider-Man* has been in these, the news—the the stage version of that, where they're having a lot of problems with their technical effects and stuff. So talk a little bit about kind of like the approach you've taken versus what they're doing and and why you think yours has been successful.
6: Well, ours is a very low-tech approach. Spider-Man, I haven't seen the production, but I'm assuming that it's real state-of-the-art kind of effects. But this is stuff that's the simplest stuff that goes all the way back to ancient Rome. You know, in those days they used to have, uh, you know, chicken blood and uh, little bladders and that they could explode on stage and uh, we've got trap doors and we've got, you know, we're we're using all of the, the kinds of old school effects and I think maybe that's the difference.
1: And do you think those kind of effects are engaging the audience more?
6: Well, what's great about these effects is that the, it's not like we're fooling the audience. The audience knows how we're doing everything, but I think they enjoy being in on the joke. I also think it's really great to let the audience's imagination be part of it. It's almost like if you do too much, then the audience becomes very passive. They just sort of sit back and say, all right, you know, thrill me. Whereas here it becomes, uh, they're, they're, they're part of the, uh, uh, you know, part of the game and uh, it gives them something to do. It puts them to work, and I like that.
1: Now, you actually have a theater background, correct?
6: Yeah, I did theater. Uh, I was the artistic director of the Organic Theater Company in Chicago for 15 years before I did my first film. And so, uh, yeah, theater is my first love.
1: And how did this musical stage version of this come about?
6: Well, I had been thinking about the idea, you know, uh, for a long time, but I couldn't figure out how to do it. And then finally it just dawned on me that Yes, you know, there is a way. And uh, I met an old friend, Mark Nutter, and saw a show that he uh, wrote the music for called Bicycle Men. And uh, that night I realized that this is the guy who should be writing the music for Reanimator. He's got this very twisted sense of humor, but his music is kind of cheerful but um, disturbing at the same time.
3: I give life, I give the gift of reanimation. I give life, I give it freely, this is my calling. I'm the modern heir to Prometheus, bringing fire to man. I give life because
1: I can radio and I can't like show them a picture or something. But <laughs> Describe a little bit, like when the audience comes in, what does that splash zone like look like and, and how is the, the space kind of Well,
6: stuff? it kind of looks like an episode of Dexter, you know, when <laughs> everything's wrapped in plastic. And as a matter of fact, right before the show starts, we have one of the people at the, one of the staff at the Steve Allen Theater here comes out with garbage bags for them to wear and he sort of shows them how to put them on. And it's kind of like, you know, the stewardess at the beginning of a, a flight. <laughs> showing you where the exits are, but uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, we, we, we want the audience to be protected as much as possible from this uh, you know, the flying uh, blood, you know, the plasma going through the air.
1: And describe this venue a little bit, because it's a nice, intimate space. It's
6: a very intimate. It's a 99-seat house, so everybody's really close to the action, which is great. We don't even have to mic the actors, which I love. You know, it's uh, I think the furthest row back is maybe about 10 rows at the most.
1: Tell me a little bit about how the actors have kind of responded or or accepted their role in this.
6: Well, I think the actors have been fantastic. And it's a very physically demanding show. You know, uh, to get some of those headless gags to work, Jesse Merlin, you know, who plays Dr. Hill, has to, you know, literally climb into a box, you know, and uh, uh, he has to wear this weird rig where he has to kind of hunch over and to make it look like he's carrying around his own head. Uh, He has to be a a contortionist. And I found out, when we were in rehearsal that he actually is double-jointed, which I think it makes it possible for him to do half of this stuff.
1: Do you have a, like a favorite gag or anything, in the, or effect? I have to say, I say
6: it's the intestines at the end of the show. Uh, you know, Herbert West gets strangled by uh, Dr. Hill's intestines, which come flying out of his body, and that sequence was something that came into the show very late in the game, and Mark wrote this song that's kind of like his version of My Way.
3: It matters not! The thoughts of those who play it safe And take the known trail How brave was I to shun the crowd And blaze my own trail I've suffered, fools endured their wrath But never stray from my noble path And even now I maintain my dignity Which can be tough
6: Herbert West sings as he's getting strangled by this boa constrictor-like uh, large intestine.
1: Do you think that the way this, the effects are and the way the plays, do you think it's almost kind of like a magic act? Like, the-
6: Well, there is magic in, in a sense. I mean, we do a lot of switching things. You know, uh, the, you know we go from a you know uh, a prosthetic head to a real head without the audience realizing it which i love you know last night there was a woman sitting in front of me and when dr hills you know uh decapitated head opened its eyes she gasped and i thought great you know we we, we did it. This, this is working
1: do you think there's two kinds of audiences that are coming to this are there the people who are the diehard reanimator film fans and then also people who've never seen the film
6: well, you know, during the previews, I would ask them how many here have seen the movie, and only about a half or a third of the audience would raise their hands. So most of the people that are coming to see this have not seen the film, which I think is really interesting. And so a lot of the, the plot points that are, you know, uh, are shocking them. You know, the characters that they've gotten to like getting killed, you know, this is like they're not expecting this. So uh, it makes it even more fun.
1: Do you know how some of these people who've never seen the film, you know, what's drawing them to this?
6: I don't know. I think it's, you know, that they've heard, so a lot of them have heard about the movie, meant to see it and never got around to it, and so this is a kind of a nice way f- to reach a whole new audience. Plus you're getting that sort of uh, musical comedy people who walk into this thing expecting it to be uh, guys and dolls and <laughs> and end up you know having the shock of their life.
1: Has the success surprised you in any way? Or are you...
6: Well, I'm very happy that, it, that people are enjoying it. You, know, uh, it, it. you know, you're always hoping that that's what's going to happen, but you never know. And, um, but from the very first preview, the audiences were just having such a good time that, uh, you know, I just relaxed and started enjoying, enjoying myself.
1: Next, let's hear from Jesse Merlin. If you're a faithful Cinema Junkie podcast listener, you'll already be familiar with him from the tour he gave us of the macabre Surgeon's Hall Museum in Scotland.
7: Well, I play Dr. Carl Hill, who's a neurosurgeon, uh, and he gets exposed as being a plagiarist. In the second act, we, we find out he's actually very much obsessed with Dean Halsey's daughter, Meg. Uh, and it's kind of his, his guiding force that he has this just all-consuming obsession for this young co-ed. Here's to Megan Halsey, a perfect girl from a dream. Eyes like sunning diamonds, a complexion like... Uh, and in the second act, he is decapitated by a shovel, and that actually liberates him. Uh, after he gets decapitated, it's like he's finally free to, to act out on his unnatural impulses. And, and he's, he's really, really even becomes more alive after death. It's a wonderful character. I, I, there's a decapitation on stage, then I have a, a puppetry rig where I'm carrying my own decapitated head around while singing, which is, which is something new. You know, as a singer, you don't get to do this sort of thing that often, and it's wonderful fun.
1: The effects are really very effective on stage, but they're very kind of low tech on a certain level. And how does that like engage the audience more than if it was maybe trying to be more flamboyant or more, you know,
7: Oh, I think it's flamboyant. It's really messy. I've never done a show with this much projectile blood in it before. It doesn't have the hyper-realistic quality of the film. The film is is like is shockingly realistic. This is it's a different it's a different thing because it's musical because it's an operetta style. It has a, a natural lightness which kind of plays counterpoint to the gruesome and grotesque doings on stage. Uh, but people connect with it. It's like people are happier to see kind of how things are happening. The illusion, I think, is still effective, particularly after I get decapitated. I have two different decapitated heads that run around besides me in the show. And when we switch from the decapitated head to my actual head so I can start singing in a, in a brain pan, it's very effective. I mean, we're, it's really gratifying. Almost every night we get a round of applause and occasionally sometimes people gasp when my eyes open because they don't realize there's been a switch. <sighs> yes doctor it's me herbert
3: west you're alive as you might have guessed this isn't a dream this is real tell me how do you feel you you
1: you well it's just funny because it seems in light of what's going on with like the spider-man musical where they're right. trying to do these very kind of high-tech right things right. and they're running into all these problems but it seems like these effects that are kind of practical effects that are happening right in front of your eyes seem to engage the audience a lot more.
7: Right. Well, it may not be as like death defying as what they do in Spider Man, but these are very dangerous uh, effects and stunts, too. I mean, Stuart is a, an astonishing director. He he pushes you to the very edge of what you are physically able to do. He kind of pushes you to the edge beyond which you cannot go any further. You can't make a change faster. You can't do this any more dynamically or, or really quickly than he asks you to do. But you're inspired to do it because he's he's kind of like this... This 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 Zen Buddha of horror. He's this happy smiling character who has this demented imagination, and and you really just really want to excel for him because because he's so amazing.
1: Explain a little bit about that effect of you holding your own head. Like I don't
7: want to I don't want to give it away. No, wait, <laughs> it's pretty yeah it's pretty magical.
1: Well maybe explain because it's for radio. Oh sure um, sure. Uh, maybe explain like what the effect. The illusion. For the body. Yeah.
7: Well what it is and people honestly I, I mean a lot of people can't figure out how we do it but. I have a, a, a tr- you know the decapitated trunk with a bloody neck stump, and then my head is, is in front of my torso, and I'm holding it. And so it really looks like I'm a contortionist. I'm able to walk in this, too. I, um, it looks like I'm holding my own head, and it creates the illusion, I think, very effectively. I mean, you can see there's a long smock, but you can see wheels underneath it, so there's clearly some kind of seat. But people can't tell if it's one person or two, and it's really especially at first when you see the, the bloody Nernies hanging off of my neck and, and my hands holding it and this kind of drool on my chin and this, this, this really um, this demented angle of the character, his, his raw id coming out. I think it's very effective.
1: I'm interviewing you here in the theater. Explain to me where we're sitting.
7: Well, we're in the second row. The splash zone was just supposed to be the front row. Uh, It's the front two rows are completely covered in cellophane. But the way the projectile blood in this show works, I mean, people in the back row are getting hit. There's nobody safe. The poor uh, musical director, his score is covered with blood. Pages of it are covered with blood. There is a lot of gore in this show. And it starts in the beginning. Most of it is in the second act, but the way I kind of describe it, this, this show is... I think it stands on its own and you don't have to have seen the movie, but it really is a love note to the fans. Because uh, there has been great attention to detail in recreating. Gags, props, costumes, moments, all the dialogue. It's really every key iconic bit of the film is, um, is recreated in this show. So, so you'll hear that, you'll hear these kind of uh, awkward laughs and responses to things that aren't visibly funny because people are recognizing moments from the movie.
3: You didn't think to try and call me or even leave me a note on the refrigerator. I was busy, and besides, what would a note conceivably say? Cat dead, details later.
1: Your character is actually responsible for most of the blood that gets sprayed into the audience through his intestine.
7: That's right, that's right. And that's, I try and take credit for that uh, because it's wonderful body double work, but it's not. It's actually my wonderful body double, uh, Brian Gillespie, who's one of our chorus members, and he plays my, uh, my, my trunk. The, most of the time I'm carrying my own head, but there are some scenes where he's actually uh, doubling for me. And there's a long length, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 feet of, of uh, lower intestine that wraps itself around the protagonist, um, the remarkable Graham Skipper, who plays Herbert West. Uh, and he sings his fond farewell, his kind of <laughs> like his, um, his torch song at the end as he's being strangled by a bow constrictor like intestine that, uh, that shoots blood all over the audience. I mean, it really can't hit the back row. Stuart was sitting in the back row and, and he got him one night, so there's nobody safe. Um, I don't actually personally get to m- uh, manipulate any of the things that shoot blood into the audience, but I do get some gruesome effects, particularly with decapitation.
1: From the stage, can you guys see much of the audience reaction?
7: Yes, yes, we can. It's a very intimate venue. I actually, this is my second show here. I did a show here that ran for a year called The Beastly Bombing. That was kind of a cult, a, a cult, of it, a cult of sensation of its own, though, though without the projectile blood. This is a, It's really not even a theater. It's a lecture hall that's been repurposed as a theater. It comfortably seats eighty-five. At a pinch, it can fit maybe ninety-five or a hundred. And with very, very little room to spare. There's no wings. There's very little backstage area. It is really tight. And you can see people. You try not to focus on that too much because that can affect your performance, but, uh, you know, one way or the other. But the, the response is truly remarkable. I mean, we were selling out with people lining up for this show in previous before any reviews had come out. And the buzz around this, particularly the devoted horror fans that love the movie, has been, has been astonishing and, and very, very gratifying. Okay, great. Thank you Thanks. so much. Thanks.
1: I also spoke with actor Graham Skipper after the performance I attended, but I had to take my audio kit out of a double-wrapped plastic bag because I'd been sitting in the splash zone. I put it in the plastic bag because I wasn't sure how far you were going to spray this time.
2: Yes, <laughs> well, I tried to get it, I try to get it nice and far.
1: <laughs> so, tell me a little bit about who you're playing in this.
2: I am playing the iconic role of Herbert West, uh, I uh, uh, made legendary by the legendary Jeffrey Combs, uh, and. I am a medical student uh, who has discovered a reagent serum that can reanimate the dead. Of course, it, it has the potential to be the greatest breakthrough in science, but you know, I, I haven't quite perfected it yet. There are still some, some hurdles along the way.
3: Something should have happened by now. Herbert, we have to go. Herbert! There's no sign of life, none at all. Clearly, the dose was too small, increasing the reagent dose to 30 cc's.
1: My god, Herbert, please this play involves quite a few effects, so tell me a little bit about working with those as an actor.
2: Well, you know, I've never done a show like this, I mean, I don't don't know that there is a show quite like this, but you know, working with this special effects team, you know, I know that they had to, you know, make effects that could one, work night after night. You know, it wasn't just a one-shot thing, you know, let's get the shot and then it's done. Two, they had to be, you know, easily manipulated. You know, there, there are a lot of really quick changes backstage. So a lot of the prostheses that they use, like the shotgun wound to the head and, uh, you know, mauled, the mauled by a bear mask. The, you know, whereas in a film, they would, you know, take hours and hours of makeup to put you into that. Here, you know, they've made masks that are shaded to match the actors' faces that can slip on and off really easily. With effects that I personally work with, like the intestines, I I wrestle with these demon intestines, zombie intestines, I'm not sure what you'd call them, towards the end of the show, and they squirt out bile and blood and things like that, and so it's really a matter of finding kind of the most low-tech way of doing it possible, because that's often the easiest way, you know? And then a lot of it, like for me, you know, we don't have intestines that will actually attack me, so then it's up to me as an actor to pretend that they're attacking me, to time out with the, uh, the stage manager who's under the stage pumping the blood out, time that with him so that I, I'm squirting it at different parts of the stage and onto the audience, mostly onto the audience, you know, to, to be really efficient with it.
1: Tell me where we're actually sitting here in the theater.
2: We're sitting in the splash zone. The front two rows officially are the splash zone. I know I make it my personal goal to shoot the, specifically the intestine blood as far out as I possibly can, Um, but you know, we we offer ponchos to people who often refuse them, which I think is is really fun. I know I certainly would. We spray them liberally with all kinds of liquids.
1: These are what you'd basically call like practical effects because they're happening in real time right in front of you. How do you think that maybe engages the audience more than if you tried to do something maybe a little more high techy or something?
2: Main difference between something like like a film and theater is that uh, I've always heard it referred to that that when you're seeing live theater, you're you're breathing the same air as the cast. You know, you are there with them, and even if they never break the fourth wall, you know, and all of that, it's it's all uh, it, there's this sort of communion that you have with the with the audience that, that you share. And with this show specifically, because we include it, you know, so liberally and, and so specifically with this show, things like blood flying out and, and uh, well, a, a lot of blood flying out, um, that, that, you know, the audience can't help but be engaged. I, I cannot imagine sitting back and relaxing in this show because something might really fly out at you. And, and what better, you know, what a better way to go see theater than to be in danger?
1: Which you also use with the cat and with dean halsey's body you've got like a puppet and kind of a giant doll that is used on stage
2: <laughs> yes, yeah, you know the the special effects team put that together uh to to make it as much like uh as much like George as possible and and you know it's great it's it's again all about you know what the zombies do with the doll you know how do they smash it on the ground you know how do they move it how does the lighting work with it to keep tricking the audience but again you know it's a thing where where the audience is you know it's the suspension of disbelief where where you know you know you're seeing a dummy but you're so into the show that it is it is raucous and it is crazy and you're going that's awesome that is George went flying around, you know, getting slammed onto the stage and getting his arms pulled off. And it's, it's fun. It's really fun.
1: Now, you guys actually even come into the audience at one point. Can you describe what you do when you come? Oh, the front row?
2: sure. Well, we're we're uh, looking to find the the best corpse. I, I say the most ripe corpse. Um, and uh, the corpses that we're searching with our flashlights are the front row of the audience. Uh, and each of them, of course, has a different cause of death, and so that's fun. And the audience plays back, too. The the audience will give us faces, and it's fun.
3: Burn victim Shotgun wound to the head Here's your meatball Choked on saliva in bed Malpractice Mauled by a bear at the zoo No,
1: God, she's rife for an actor doing because you know this isn't a typical kind of thing to have this kind of amount of gore and effects on a show so how is that for you is it more difficult to to have to work with that or
2: it's awesome (laughs) i mean i love it I, i love this stuff anyway but to be able to you know work that into your performance and and it's it's like a science you know you get it down to a rhythm where where you know exactly how everything works and and you know the right timing to get the best response out of the audience that you can to get the blood to go the furthest you know you you know these things and you 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 learn them over the course of doing the show and and so it's fun it's just an added element you know it's 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 like a, a prop that that endows you with a certain amount of added life to your character you know the show would not be the same without this uh all of this stuff it, it really adds something and it makes it a truly unique theater going experience
1: do you ever aim at anybody in particular?
2: Well, tonight there was somebody wearing a white panda hat sitting in the front row. I thought, really, you're gonna wear a white panda hat in the front? So I got it. I drenched it. I don't think that panda hat will ever be white again. But she loved it. <laughs> she was she was really happy. So hey, great.
1: Now, speaking of drenching things, uh, what color are your hands right now?
2: Uh, beet red. They are beet red. I mean, it all washes out. But hey, eh, you know why 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 speed along that process?
1: And finally, here are the special effects geniuses behind the gore of Reanimator the Musical. And they all worked on the original film as well.
0: To everybody in the lobby and around the lobby, we are recording some audio over here for National Public Radio, so if we could hold it down, really appreciate it. Thank you. Pa- pass it on.
5: <laughs> My name is John Beekler, and um, I was one of the members of the effects team for the original Reanimator and also. Uh, have had the privilege to work on the uh, the uh, stage musical version thereof I guess on the original film that there was a version of the Dr. Hill head which eyes moved around and was operated I actually wore the thing once as Dr. Hill bumping into things holding the head spilling over occasionally I created some of the reanimated corpses a memorable one called Shotgun, which we sort of irreverently called uh, Gesundheit. We did the failed operation and a few, a few more disturbing things, and we kind of did pretty much the same on, on, on this one. We, we added a little bear mold victim and uh, recreated shotgun or Gazuntite, and um, we did sort of a, a nasty-looking burn victim.
1: Okay, and you are...
4: My name's Tony Dublin, and uh, um, well, I was like—I guess you might say—the uh, chief on uh, reanimator for special effects and makeup effects, and coordinating all these guys and all the effects work and stuff. And John and I and John—we designed everything together, and floor operated it. And what you see is was our work on the show, and. John and I got together with Stewart when he said he wanted to do this as a musical and we we're trying to figure out, okay, how we're gonna make the transition between a film, which is a very different way of staging effects, to the stage, which is a completely different way of staging things, and uh, coming up with some lists. And you got John involved, and this John, and the rest, as they say, is history.
1: <laughs> and you are.
0: And I'm John Nolan and uh, Tony and I co- co-supervised in the original film. And I would have to say that uh, the experience on this was not undifferent than that, in the fact that it all started off with a breakdown from Tony and a discussion of, oh, my God, how can we possibly do this within the time allotment and budget and all of that sort of stuff. And it, it was even more of a discussion this time, but, uh, uh, and especially the theater, because it's so small and so tiny and limited sight lines and stuff. So it was more of a combination of uh, magic illusion, uh, the table which Tony Tony built and uh, and props and uh, Stewart had actually done a little sketch of the roll around gag, which on the film what, we did a, something very similar, but it was done with two people, and of course we could control the angles uh, much greater. And you know, if you look at this, it's a little it looks you know it comes out a little too wide, but then it's just for what has to happen underneath it, it is a little too wide. In the film, it's actually wider. So um, uh, it was an improvement. <laughs> I'd say an improvement, uh, and now it's, it's done by the actual Dr. Hill actor. So built the what, the autopsy corpse and the, and the corpse in the opening and the, the intestines, which Tony then rigged to blow all kinds of fun stuff out of them. Funny, uh, oh, God, the, when we saw it, the audience was dying in that particular... Uh, scene and uh so we died with them, and that was fun and did of course the, the 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 cat on on Rufus this time we got just kind of basic uh puppets that were uh designed that Tony had found online by a company called Folkmonics up near the uh, bay area, and we kind of de-stuffed them a little changed them around and and then I rigged them rigged them up and and uh did did one of them as the dead Rufus and just kind of uh reprised pretty much what we did on the original. Except that we took the original Dr. Hill head casting, and that was done by a non- young gentleman named Gregory, and I can't remember his last name this time, uh, who had worked with Stewart on um, on the Edgar Allan Poe thing that here here and done some makeup with him. So he was willing to do it, and I think he was working over at K&B. So I think they supplied the materials
4: and stuff. Well, he also had that life cast of uh, Jesse, who plays Dr. Hill.
0: So okay, so we already had.
4: Yeah, they already had that, so oh. they just they took the life cast that was already existing from another show, and turned that into the Doctor Hillhead, with uh, the addition of some wigs and stuff. I guess. Yeah,
0: I did. Yeah, I got the fun fun choice of doing the wigs, and, and with our budget and, and Stuart saying, but are they going to be human hair wigs? And I just said, no, because <laughs> get you know first of all, getting three human hair wigs that are, match exactly is almost impossible. Because people don't happen to have that much hair for one person to get rid of it, and of course we didn't have the budget, so took three, uh, actually three female wigs, and and uh, uh, reblocked them, and steamed them, and recut them, and styled them, and that's you know.
1: Can I ask what your budget was?
0: <laughs> let's, let's let's just say that the budget to build everything for this was approximately ten percent of what the budget was on the film twenty six years ago.
5: Yeah. All right. On, so on other hand, I've never been paid so much. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now, talk a little bit about the approach you decided to take in terms of the effects, because the, style, the the choices you make are really fun because I think they engage the audience. I mean, you're not obviously trying to make them completely realistic.
0: Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, damn. No. <laughs> failed. Well, I don't know. I mean, I would say we we actually used some of the original sculpture work from the film, uh, as far as the uh, anatomical head, which I provided the tooling for, Tony made the vacuum form pieces, and then we did the painting and we did the latex one. And and so um, uh, that was from the sculpture from the original film. I I had made a foam master before that mold literally rotted, and so we took a casting off of that. And uh, so that worked out. And then uh, the same thing with the next stump was actually... Uh, from an an old foam master. Actually, the the mold was made on this was from a foam master that I'd painted up and given to Stuart. So uh, so we we had that from uh, from an old rubber piece. So so we we were able to obviously recreate a lot of the stuff in the film because it's very similar because it's out of the original uh, sculptures and stuff. So I'd say one of the choices was Rufus could be a little less realistic. And part of that is just because of the dialogue and the music and the and the kind of fun tone and leaving the note and all of that sort of stuff. And uh, from our meetings, I mean, we we had our first meeting with Stuart, but on this over a year ago,
4: almost two years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I you mean, know, the this is the first thing went out of my mouth at least was how the hell are we going to stage all this, you know? Because again, you know, when you, when you're shooting a movie. You have a very small window that the you know the camera lens. So you have a very small window that you have to stage to, you know. And a lot of everything we did in the film, we staged to that window. Whereas when you get out on stage, you've got a twenty-foot proscenium, mm-hmm. you know, and you've got audience looking around. So how the hell are you going to stage all this stuff? It's well, a very different concept. We we even literally got
0: to a point where Tony had recommended uh, using a, a Super One Eight Five format for the film uh, that shared the same bottom frame. Um, but same bottom frame uh, as, as, as TV safe, because controlling those sight lines, controlling those angles, cutoff points and stuff was so important that something literally that would work on the film wouldn't work then for the VHS. So, uh, you know, the, that's, that's how much it was broken down for the film and controlled. And here, <laughs> here it just happened and it's right there in front of you. He took what, you did the, what we did with bioluminescent uh, luminite type material yeah. for, the, um, for the film. Uh, Tony uh, decided to go with LEDs, uh, you know,
4: LED technology for the... Yeah, because the, the, uh, on the film we went through 900 of those um, glow sticks. And you had to, you had to uh, cut them open and take the parts apart and filter it all out. And plus the stuff they said was non-toxic it actually burned people's skins in that. So we didn't want to have that stuff. Plus it's only good for about a half an hour, you know. And to do it for a stage play, you know. So we, I'd been working with uh, LEDs a lot on robot chicken, um, doing lighting and that. And uh, so it's like, okay, this is the way to do this. You know, do the bottles, do the syringes, something we can turn on and off, uh, replace the batteries. You know, just much simpler, much cleaner a lot less heartache, you know. Plus, it's bright enough. It also has to be bright enough under the stage lights, to, so that it really reads, you know. And that was always the problem with the bioluminescence. They had to stage the scenes properly because if it was too bright, even with the, that stuff going, you couldn't see it. You yeah,
0: and, and we'd have to say we've got to owe oh, a big thank to Mac, thanks to Mac Allberg for a that. He
5: brilliant cinematographer yeah. on, on the original uh, reanimator, Mac Allberg, who could light anything and make it look like a masterpiece. And he was right in there w- making it look great. You now, you know, nobody had enough money back then to do anything correctly, so you did it the way you could do it. And and Mac was the savior. He. He, he, he really came through. He was a, a great addition to the team.
1: One thing that might have prepared you for doing the show from the film is that you were kind of working with practical effects in the film. I mean, stuff. it wasn't CGI. I mean, you were using
4: stuff that was...
1: It wasn't invented.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right, there
3: so was.
4: He, well, the, okay, to put it in a time frame, uh, I think, what, a year and a half earlier, the, first, the last Starfighter came out, and that took them a couple of years on Cray supercomputers just to get the spaceship shots and nothing else. So this technology CGI did not really exist in any, right? You know, feasible form for motion pictures in those days.
1: So do you think working on the film kind of prepped you in, in an odd sort of way for the kind of work you were doing here in the theater?
5: You know, in 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 many ways, the the the, the specific gags that I was uh, involved with were were. were practical effects anyway, and they have to work 3-D. They have to work in, in the round all the time because these are applications you put on actors and, and they have to perform in them. The only, the only gag that I was involved with was making the, the little, little mouth and the eyes move on, on, on the hillhead. But um, by and large, the, the, the translation from, from film to stage used a lot of the same elements because I, I I got a life mask, I made a sculpture, I made a mold, I did a casting. The difference is I had to design a way to put it on the actors so they can put it on and take it off themselves without any application time, without any blending edges or anything. So basically I, I, I designed half masks, sort of the Phantom of the Opera kind of a thing, so that it would hold tight to the skin and from the stage, it reads pretty much like an appliance. So the 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 skills required are, are very similar, and it's very low-tech, very retro, I
0: guess.
1: Okay, so I, I wanted to know if you think these kind of practical effects engage the audience more.
0: Well, I, I think that naturally they do. I mean, and, and obviously, you know, they, they do in a, in a theater environment. I come out of theater. I mean, I got my first degree in theater, and I've, you know, I did... I've done sixteen years of theater uh, off and on and my daughter's a theater student and, you know, work with nonprofit groups and stuff like that. So and and Tony comes very strongly out of physical effects and I mean you can ask Tony, you know, how they did something on a nineteen eighteen film and he'll tell you how they did it. I mean that's just kinda kinda you know, he's a kind of a walking physical effects library and and even though I think we've all been involved in uh, digital effects subsequently you know, I did a lot of work in. Um, uh, in fact, my wife and I created the first uh, the first reflective suits for the first Tron. We did all the little reflective markers and stuff like that for the first Tron, and that was prior. That was actually prior to uh, Reanimator. So, um, uh, and then subsequently, the first set of live live uh, marker uh, mocap suits. We did the first ones of those um, as well. So, you know, it's it's kind of it's kind of a marriage. You know, it's kind of a marriage in the film industry, but you don't have that ability here. I mean, this is this is happening right in front of you. You know, we talked about what the theater of no talked about the black art. You know, Japanese black art and actually having people in yeah, in and black and costumes in front who, of black operating things hearing. and yeah, right. You know, and
4: yeah. anything that you know, but it also had to be very stylized. See, and that was one of the things that I wanted to to work, try to talk Stuart into is stylizing everything so we get away with a lot you know, because there was no chance to do it over again, you know, (laughs) if the guts fall out and they don't hit the guy so he can work with them, then where's take two? You know, you got one shot at it and it has to work, you know, so it was was just, you know, trying to stylize things to get that, you know, okay, so we're not trying to show you the real autopsy head, you know, or, or having all kinds of stuff you know, like gallons of blood falling out. There's still a lot of blood, but not like... We went through 52 gallons of blood on the film, yeah. okay? So does that give you an idea? What, yeah, I had to bring in special crew people just to clean up the bloody drool and and the blood on the floor on the stage so we can move on to the next setup.
0: And Peter Kent, well, the, the, the original, he was uh, also Arnold's primary stunt double, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he, he had been doing... Uh, he was doing um, the the first Terminator movie at the same time we were doing Reanimator, and he is the bone saw victim you know here uh for in the original film and he he we, He laid on the floor dead for so long that he stuck <laughs> and so he completely stuck to the stage floor, but he was afraid to just kind of rip it off because he had to go and, and literally do one of the scenes where he's got almost no clothing on as the Terminator that night. So uh, A, we had to make stuff so that it was cleanable and B, I remember we were out there with warm water trying to get him pried off the set so that, uh, so that we could get him up and off the set because it was all sugar based. So
1: how much blood do you go through in a production
4: here? Um, probably two or three quarts you know I think we've got a half a gallon Hudson sprayer in that stage bucket, and then there's a couple of syringes and and the inima bag for when, you know, it's basically the same gag that we're doing when when uh, uh, West forces the bone saw through the, the guy in there, and uh, it's an inima bag that's decorated on the front, and the the uh, costume is revealed or uh, is pre-cut, so you can push the bag through, and then he just squirts it with his free hand, and he's got a dummy hand on the side. But see, that was, when we did that on the film, we had a fake chest on the actor, and he's leaning over so that he's bent forward. This chest went straight down, and I've got my arm up between his real chest and the backside of the fake chest, and we have the bone saw. The front end of the bone saw was a prop, Put that in my hand. Put two f- tubes for fake blood, and then ground beef around my hand, and I stuck my hand out through his chest. Okay, and I'm covered in a trash bag. Okay, <laughs> I got running down my arms and stuff like that.
1: Now, when you say two quarts, does that include what Herbert West sprays into the audience? Yeah. Really. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, you atomize it. You know, you, atomize it. you put a lot of air in there, and, and, and you feel it and wet. I mean, if, 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 if he was blowing gallons of stuff around the theater, A, they would spend the whole day cleaning the theater, and uh, B, it's a soap-based material this time around, so people would, they would be slipping around on it. You know, it's just not necessary. I mean, people don't need to get that wet for the effect.
4: The funny thing is, Stuart and I, when we when I first started the, uh, um, the previews, we were having this discussion. I said, I, I, I was pushing for more blood, and he was pushing for less blood because we were afraid, you know, you got the stage lights, you got the stage, you got to, people got to clean up, you got, you don't want to get it in their eyes and whatever. So we were still working that out as well. But then he's like, well, we maybe have enough blood. And then he comes back to me like after the first previews, and he says, you know, we need more blood. And I said, what a surprise. <laughs> I said, you know, the funny thing is, our roles have changed because in the film, you were fighting for more blood. I was trying to talk out of less so we could, you know, keep shooting. He wanted, you know, so then our roles had changed. So then I went out when he, when he called me in the morning, like a Monday morning after the first previews, he said, well, we need to get more blood. So I went out and just on the way in here, stopped at a couple of hardware stores, dug through my garage and dug up some of my stuff. And it filled a box full of just stopping at the hardware store and just grabbing things, so like kind of like put something together on the stage. You know that one. You both oh, do. Yeah. You know,
5: yeah. just you
4: know, pull something out, grab it out of the hat when we got here.
5: When when you talk about is is the kind of practical effects used in the films back in the eighties, and and how it relates to the, the the theatrical presentation here, and is that actually more? Does it grab an audience better? And, and I think that there's certainly an argu- argument to be made that when you have a practical effect on stage or on screen, it does have a tendency to grab the audience better because the actors have a tendency to react to it more realistically because it's honestly there. And the audience is there in the moment experiencing whatever happens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's that old thing where you play the moment Whether the blood spills to the left or to the right, it's a real and honest thing. It's not something that's been storyboarded four months ago, and a CGI artist has has contrived to put it exactly where it's going to be to create the effect. This is practical, it's real, and therefore I think it works better.
1: Now whose idea was the splash zone?
4: That was Stuart's. John and I were trying to talk him out of it because we were afraid of liability. You know, somebody shows up in really nice clothes, and they don't know that you're going to be spraying this stuff around. And, you know, you could be, you, could be, you know.
0: Now, that said, they have a great gal here at the theater that's working at the theater, and she goes out and she explains it to the whole first two oh, really? audiences. Okay. Now, I'll have to say, uh, my son, who is going to come see the show next Saturday, has requested to be in the splash zone because he was reading the reviews and stuff and he specifically wants the stuff sprayed on him. So, you know, and... uh and, you know, and he's, he, he is planning to turn down the bags and wear a brand-new T-shirt, and, and whatever ends up on the T-shirt, he, he wants to see if he can get Stewart to sign it afterwards. And I'm going, hey, merchandising. <laughs> yeah.
5: <laughs> I'd wrap myself in saran wrap, I think. I don't think I want to go down with blood. <laughs> I've been
4: had enough blood on me, thank yeah, you. Yeah, me too. But one of the things that led us to that, a story out of the film, was one of the guys that was working the uh, one of the Dr. Hill bodies, um, he was like his hands when he was holding this the, the fake head. He put his head down and he actually we had to replace a set of contact lenses because the blood the the uh, food coloring in the blood dyed his contact lenses. Yep. So we had to replace his contact lenses, which trust me was not in our budget. <laughs> you know <laughs> so
0: that's, pizza was not in our budget. Yeah, no, yeah, right. yeah. Oh go ahead. Well, you know part of the part of the situation that uh, we ran into on the film is like you said, you know, Stuart was like, more foamy drool, more blood, more foamy drool. And I'll oh, never forget at the, at the very, very first, uh, you know, very first uh, cast and crew screening, after this is all done, Stuart walks up to me and goes, You know,
4: you're sick. And I just looked at him like, Me? What are you talking about? You know? well, that's what Dennis, <laughs> that's what the production manager said to me. He looks at me. I was, I was turning in my paperwork. He looks at me. I'm gonna. To, if I quote him exactly, it's one of the seven words you can't say on the radio. But he says, "Tony, you're one sick boot." And, and I look at him, Oh, thank you.
0: <laughs> well, because you know we had a we had a a, a butcher shop up on Sepulveda Boulevard is one of our main suppliers on Reanimator for for brains and for chicken parts, you know, chick, yeah. ground
4: beef, and we bought a couple of full-size beef livers, which are about the size of this table, and uh, that's what the body was. Those were the
1: days. <laughs> <laughs> Talk a little bit about the first effect that happens in the play and how that kind of maybe
4: That's affects the audience that, there. That, that was me.
5: That was Dr. Gruber. And you did who, it in
4: the film, too. I
5: did it in the film. Actually, I did, I did not do it in the stage version. I did it in the film. And I, I'm, I haven't seen the stage play yet, so I'm going to oh, see how you, they do I it. I
4: thought you some. did this.
5: No, I did not. Oh. Twas not maw. But uh, it was one of the
0: two other names that is listed for special effects, yes. Yeah, and,
5: and the the original film, it, it was actually done as a second thought. Uh, I think it was in the original screenplay, but they didn't get around to shooting it, and they saw the film and said, you know, we really need that. So we designed basically bladder appliances underneath uh, a prosthetic of the actor's face so that we could actually fill his eyes up with with air and then subsequently with blood and literally blow them out of his head onto the people standing around him. And I, I think aside from you know the, the physical aspect of it looking nice and tasty and being very distressing to watch, I, I love the, the writing because the, the lady says you killed him and, and, and then you know Herbert West said, I gave him life
3: of course he's dead. The dosage was too large. You killed him! No. I
1: gave him life.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Well, what about the... Cue the
0: music, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, what about the intestine scene at the end? Did you guys work on...
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, well, uh. <laughs> the, the, the intestine scene, we, we, discussed, we discussed and tested about three or four different ways to do this. And... Uh, you know those, uh, those promotional characters that they have that you know, are just waving around and stuff like that? So the first idea was, could we blow them out? And uh, it, ta- it turns out it takes a lot of pressure <laughs> to do that. And I got it up to literally leap, leaf blower type pressure before we could get anywhere near it. So that was, uh, that was not acceptable because of the noise it would make. And then the you know then the second thought was maybe we can take it and have have it attached and the the actor pulls it towards himself or something like that. Well, then Stewart said he says I want something real light like a like a feather boa, and my wife took, uh, Shana my my wife does the did all of the soft sculptural pieces of the stuff we did and and she uh, and has for thirty some years. Um, she took this, this flesh-colored material that is actually designed for making the inside lining of swimming suits, and it's, it's kind of like, like sewing air, and uh, she sculpted it, and with little bits of polyfoam in between, the whole thing didn't weigh, I mean, it, it, it literally moved like a feather bow, it weighed almost nothing. And uh, subsequently, Stuart said, can I have six more feet of that? And, you know, that's, that's a standard Stuart uh, situation. <laughs> you know, we made uh, 10 to 12 feet of it, and we wanted another six feet. And then uh, Tony got the idea of putting, uh, putting a line down the center of it and it making it a cool. squirt.
4: and I, I, I would love to take credit for that by myself, but really it was Stuart and I were standing there over there at the counter, and they bring the, the thing out because we're trying to figure out where we can add more blood to this thing simply, okay, and like I said earlier, I had stopped by the store and picked up, just, just happened to pick up like 20 feet of tubing, because I knew what, you know, the, the standard kit, you know, that we've always done. So I grabbed all this stuff and just found the last wand, for, replacement wand for a Hudson sprayer, you yeah. know, a spray wand. Got that, bring it in here, and we're like, okay, what can we do with this stuff? So, oh, how about on, on your thing? So yeah. we get the guys, we line it up. We, I had some red tie wraps in my kit. So we just red tie wrapped the thing in there, and then ran a couple of tests with water, right, standing right over there by the door. And uh, hey, this is a great. Okay. Well, and then
0: what, I think they added the line in the in the in the song where he says, "What did what did Hill you know what did Hill have for dinner?" Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's just like you know, and the audience just absolutely is on the floor for that one. And,
3: and tell me what the hell did Hill have for dinner? It matters not. The thoughts of those who oh, play it safe and take the known trail. How brave was I to shun the crowd and blaze my own trail?
0: And, uh, and we were right there with him. I, I thought, wow, that's really great. That really worked. So, you know, it evolves. And, and I, I will have to say this one of the things about working with Stuart. And, um, I mean, this is the fifth thing that I've done with Stuart. I think you've done three or four of them and, as well. And, and the thing is that you, you never walk in with the final gag with Stuart. Once he sees it, that's when that last 10% of idea and creativity and stuff, and that comes from being a stage director, you know. It's that first time, that first dress rehearsal where everybody's in costume and in makeup where suddenly it starts to gel. It's, it's basically a situation there where it just evolves that last 10% once it all comes together. And I, I have a day job at the time. Tony was on hiatus, so he was able to be here for those magic moments, and I wasn't this time around.
1: Yeah, I, I want to ask, because part of the, the reason that I was interested in pitching this 10PR and talking about it is, with, in contrast to the success you're having and how well the show's like playing for the audience, Spider-Man, they're trying to bring it to the, to the stage, and they're trying, it seems like they're trying to do these very high tech cinematic effects and they're running to all these problems and delays and you know actors are getting stuck on wires and I was wondering well, like, you how, know. how you view that in comparison. You got to you gotta
0: look at, at what they did for Lord of the Rings you know they used forced perspective like like which has been on film for 60 years with uh, you know a, 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 a lens that will hold focus for you know a deep, a deep focal length they used and they used it brilliantly they used diopters, which is the, basic of the, the basis of the old uh, 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 introvision system. They used I mean, they used every kind of physical gag that has ever been done, to my knowledge, on film, and then combined it and, and framed it and brought out and gelled it with the certain moments and elements of, of digital. And again, it's a marriage. You know And the ones that successfully do that I think are always the ones that end up with the Oscars and things like that. It's not. It's you know, digital has not replaced practical. You know, ILM still has a, a creature department. You know, a friend of mine works there. Uh, Mark Siegel works up there, and and, and uh, you know, down in uh, down in New Zealand at Weta, they still have a physical,
4: huge physical department. Yeah, but you know, Spider Man, you got. Well, I'm talking about the play
1: version. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah.
4: Trying to fly somebody on wires is very difficult, and you know when you look at stuff like the Peter Pan stage plays and and uh, um, what's another one that has a lot of wire. There's there's a bunch of them out there that have wire flying, and there's some guys that do it really well that are famous for stage wire flying.
0: Yeah, Ralph Ayers was one of those that uh, that helped to come up with the the systems for the first uh, you know, Peter that, Pan. That
4: group flying by Foy. You yeah, know, they've been doing that stuff for years, and that's you're in the, you know, strictly mechanics. You've got tracks overhead, you've got cables, you've got counterweights, you've got things that are taking up the slack, you know, plus you've got balance points, and if your actors can't support themselves properly, they start getting off balance, and then things can, you know, it's a big deal. It's difficult. I worked on, I've done some wire flying on things, out on shows. We did it from From beyond. We flew flew, uh, Jeff Combs on the, the yes. giant worm, you know, in the tank it's tough, and to try to do it again, in front of a live audience, and have those things, you know, people running and jumping, and he's fl- flitting across the buildings and stuff like that you've got people that are working those wires behind, they're like, it's like human uh, marionettes you know, and if somebody misses a cue or the wire jams up, or the weight's not quite right, they're going to go down you know, and if you pull them too fast you can snap the wire you know, if they missed a cue and then you pull a tension up on that wire, you can snap because you can't use a heavy wire, otherwise, you know, the guy's hanging on steel cables.
0: And they try to do today digitally what's been done manually in the past, too. I mean, you know, I mean, I, as I understand it, they used a lot of the um, uh, cable cam type technologies and stuff like that when they were trying to work this all out. Uh, so a lot of it was, it was all digitally controlled. Well, you know, I mean, they ran into this down at Disneyland uh, years ago. They had the, the very first audio-animatronic show with the, you know, what was it called, with the little birds, the uh, Tiki Room, oh, tiki yeah, room, tiki room. Tiki room. Mm-hmm. and this dude had been running the Tiki Room for years and years and years and years and years, and they were, you know, he was so attuned. If one of those solenoid valves was out of sync, he heard it, and he went, and it's only 180 degrees off, he would just fix it, and the, and the show ran for years successfully. So they actually brought a company, a digital company, in, and, okay, we're going to fix it. Now we don't have to pay this guy, so it'll save us a lot of money. And within, uh, within two to three weeks, they're back at his doorstep, knocking on his door, saying, okay, how did you do this, and how did you do that, and how could you catch it if this happened and that happened? he came back as a consultant to show them how to fix it uh, at, a, at a lot more than they probably would have had to pay him until he retired. You, there are a lot of
5: special effects-driven movies which absolutely feature the 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 effects more than ever before and a lot of them are digital, a lot of them are practical, a lot of them are physical but but the, the fact of the matter is that I think the audiences and the producers have seen everything that's possible to do by simply throwing it into post and doing it all digitally they think they can do it physically and practically on stage and make it just as as easy whereas in, in old school, in the physical effects school, you respect the fact it's tough to do. And it takes time to to work out all the bugs. And you can't fix it in post. And I think that's what they're looking at in Spider-Man. They can't fix it in post. They're in post. And it's not working because Gravity's it didn't real. work, didn't yeah, work oh, cool right in the first place. So So part of the design is to figure out What is feasible and still looks great? You still have to be a magician. You're absolutely right, you know. ILM builds the best miniatures in the world, and they use them. It's not all constructed with CGI. People think, yeah, that's what they do. Mm -hmm. But no, you don't just push a button, Mm -hmm. add water, and make an effect. It's hard work. And if you try Mm -hmm. to make that happen every night with a different set of people and a different set of circumstances, it's going to screw up.
1: Do you guys, can each of you maybe talk about what your favorite effect is that you worked on in this play? Or a favorite kind of moment from it? Do you have one? Or?
5: I'm going to view the play for the first time this evening. <laughs> Are you so, going to be here
1: after? Then maybe I should. Ask you
5: perhaps, something. perhaps. I, I I do remember we added a new little character that wasn't in the movie, and that's a. a, a and I, I hope it's still in the play, it's, it's the little brownie that was mauled by a bear. And for me, just, just the idea is very distressing, and I'm looking forward to seeing it.
4: You? Yeah. I haven't seen it yet either.
1: Or, cre- or something that you create? I mean, in terms yeah. of like the process of putting this together, some solution that you found to a problem or something you created to use?
4: Something oh. you're proud of? I think I'm proud of syringes and stuff like that. It took a lot of, to figure, you know, just to figure them out, you know. So I think that's something, you know. And I'm quite proud of the whole thing, that, that the fact that people are responding to it, you know, and, and responding to Stewart's work and that. So it's like. We're going to have to do a sound okay. check in if we about in two minutes. Okay. I was on yeah. the last no. question. Yeah. Okay. catching catch all-in. Yeah, but that's that's pretty much you know, that's pretty much it. I, th- I think I'm proud of the whole thing. It's hard to say, it's like somebody asks you what's your favorite movie, you know, <laughs> or, or who's your favorite kid, you know. It's it's They're like all your children. Exactly. Well, yeah,
0: and, and I mean, and we actually went, we went. Through some of the discussion about this, in 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 the process, it was like, where are the key moments? You know, obviously we have to make them believe that that Hill has lost his head, and and this, that, another thing, and you know, where where can we can we take a pre-made puppet and change it a little bit, and where can we take a, a Halloween gag or something like that and make it uh, make it a little different or add an element or two to it to make it work, and and things like that. But the fact that you still believe that a guy walks up behind him, hits him, with a, you know, hits him with a shovel, cuts his head off. They put the rubber head down. It falls back. The actor's head comes up. And, I mean, I was sitting next to newbies when we saw it. And when he's tapping a pencil on that, those eyes open and he started talking. These people did not catch it at all. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a clean switch and it's a, basically a magic gag. And, and they hadn't caught that at all. And since it was several seconds ago, they were complete, hundred percent believing that that was a rubber head until it came back to life, Mm -hmm. and uh, and and so to me that was probably the most special moment, and uh, that was Greg's Greg's head, my wigs, your table, and uh, and uh, and the little little neck piece that I put together, you know, so that was kind of a. You know, it, it's just plus fun that it all comes... Plus
4: two actors that were acting. Correct, right. you know, absolutely. And, and working the business, because if they weren't working the business properly out there on the stage, the stuff we built wouldn't work at all. Right. You know, so it's really, this is more even collaborative than doing a film, because you, once you give it to them, you say, this is how it works. It's up to them to make it operate. I can't walk out there on stage and go, you know, you, you screwed this one up, we need to do it again. Right. You know, <laughs> You know. They, they're they're out there doing it.
3: I've had a look and there's no longer any doubt. It's big, it's what I need and crave. It is an outstanding basement as
1: There are no announced plans for Reanimator the Musical to open anywhere else. Everyone involved is interested in keeping this brilliant show alive, but finding a venue and getting the backing is tough. So, if there's anyone out there with a million or so dollars laying around who wants to back a production, say in San Diego, please step forward. Then I can enjoy this bloody little masterpiece in my own city and not have to make a road trip to see it. I have faith that Reanimator the Musical will continue to reanimate. I can't imagine life without it. Thanks to Stuart Gordon and Company for giving many people a lot of blood-soaked joy. We eagerly await announcement of the next Splash Zone location. Thanks for listening to another horror-themed October edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. Next week, I'll end my month of horror with a collection of people recalling the first film to scare them. I spoke with horror icons like actor Tony Todd and Fright Night director Tom Holland, as well as people attending Horrible Imaginings Film Festival. And next month, I'm off to Wales for the Abattoir Horror Film Festival, and we'll have some special podcasts for you. So till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. You can subscribe to my podcast on iTunes, or just visit my blog at kpbs.org slash cinema junkie. Thanks again.